Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Gut Feeling Podcast, speaking with musicians about how they found their sound. My name is Gregory Adams and I'm an arts reporter out in Vancouver, BC, with current bylines in Guitar World, Revolver, Bandcamp Daily, Exclaim and more. But earlier this fall, I started the Gut Feeling Substack newsletter as another outlet to speak with some artists about their work. Uh, Throughout November, I've had some conversations with uh, Dave Carr from Vancouver metal band Neck of the Woods, all about soloing on a Paul Reed Smith guitar and how that complements the band's new hot sauce. I've spoken with Ian Patrick Shelton from Military Gun about bringing melodic vocals back to post-hardcore. And I had also spoken with Actors and Leathers member Shannon Hemmett about the guitar pedal-inspired art series she's doing under the name Pedal Prints. You can find the full archive at gutfeeling.substack.com. A couple housekeeping things off the top. I would like to thank Josh Brown from Crud is a Cult and Ink and Dagger for the use of The Changeling by Ink and Dagger as the theme song for the second episode in a row. I'd thought that I'd maybe painted myself into a corner by using the song in the first episode, but it truly rips, so I'm glad that uh, I was able to use it again. I've also had a handful of articles published throughout the month outside the newsletter, including a piece on thrash band Havoc through Guitar World, uh, another piece in Revolver on a hardcore band called Gulch, and if I've played my cards right, by the time the episode comes out, Exclaim will have published my interview with early 2000s uh, boy band B44, all about the time that they opened up for Josie and the Pussycats during a movie shoot at Vancouver's Pacific Coliseum. I was happy to get in touch with the band's Ohad Einbinder, who is no longer in the music scene, but instead developing portable housing solutions through his Circa Homes. I was really glad to have the conversation, and it just kind of illustrates how we never can predict where our lives uh, will end up. And I guess that's probably as good a segue as any to start talking about uh, this episode's guest, Jesse Gander. Now, Jesse Gander grew up in North Vancouver. He came up through Vancouver's punk scene as the teen singer of DBS, a band that basically existed for a decade uh, from the early 90s to the early 2000s. Uh, Along the way, they did countless North American tours, they toured Europe with DOA, they did a split record with Anti-Flag, as well as recording about a half dozen full lengths of their own. Through it all, Jesse was also taking stock of what was going on behind the scenes during those recording sessions, uh, asking questions of the producers that they were working with at the time, uh, just to understand the mechanics of making a record, something that would greatly help him as he developed his own path as a recording engineer. Early on, Jesse would bring a four-track recorder to various punk houses in Vancouver to record 7-inches and demo cassettes, but eventually he'd invest in a Pro Tools setup and start recording uh, albums in his parents' basement, converting his brother's bedroom into wreckage recorders. Jesse would eventually move out of that basement, uh, moving wreckage recorders into the second studio of Profile Studios, which is where DBS had made a lot of those early records. Later on, Jesse would move into the Hive facility out of Burnaby, and more recently, he's been working out of Rain City Recorders. From those early four-track sessions up to his current studio work, Jesse has literally had his hands in several hundred key releases from local bands and international acts alike. His discography is staggering, uh, including high-profile bands such as uh, Japan Droids and White Lung, bluesy rock duo The Pack A.D., Early work from metal band Three Inches of Blood. He's recorded a pair of albums with Belgian post-hardcore band Brutus. Somewhat recently, he went to Bulgaria to track another post-hardcore album with a band called TDK. 
One quick note, because I don't think it's exactly clear in the early part of the interview, I'm referencing Jesse's musical parents, and in particular these photographs that uh, were hanging in the family home and then would eventually be hanging in uh, wreckage recorders and the hive, and I'm going to presume that they're likewise up at Rain City Recorders. They're actually these really cool old photos of uh, bands playing Vancouver, including uh, The Cramps and uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and R.E.M. Just truly wonderful photos. And uh, if nothing else, it's just proof that the Ganders are a multi-generational part of Vancouver's music scene. Keeping things somewhat short, uh, this is the interview with Jesse Gander. Uh, I really enjoyed having this talk with him. We are entering the conversation just as I'm explaining what happened the very first time that Jesse and I did an interview together. I hope you enjoy it. I looked at our, what I believe to be my first interview with you. Which was, uh, for for the Kwantlen Chronicle, my college newspaper, we were talking about Pro Tools. So this would have been, I guess, just around the time you were were kind of starting up from your your parents' basement. Uh, For sure. One of the things that stuck out is that you, uh, we didn't use your name. You wanted to go uh, under an alias just because you didn't want people to know that you had recording equipment in in your parents' house. Oh, weird. (laughs) That's funny. Well, I guess at that time it was... um fairly like sacred technology <laughs> that's weird i can't believe i did that I, I i don't remember being like deeply paranoid about that <laughs> yeah it's not it's it's not like a clever pseudonym so i'm gonna say that i'm probably the one that just gave you the name the name was alan no last name just alan that's funny yeah. alan okay <laughs> fair enough <laughs> Uh, but but kind of diving into that maybe uh, just just because it is something that that grew out of your parents' house and, and your parents are, are are very musical people like I can think about your dad's uh, photographs being in the house and then later in your many studios. I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about your relationship with music uh, growing up and and how it was introduced to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, in in my house we always had uh, musical instruments like. Uh, my mom plays guitar. Um, my dad plays a little bit too. My dad plays piano. Um, so you know that's a part of it. But they're they're musicians, um, you know, on their own terms. They never played in a band or anything like that. Um, also, my parents have like a lot of hobbies and interests. So it's not like they are obsessive guitar players or like you know um, royal conservatory piano pianist or anything like that. Um, so. Um, but my my parents are huge record collectors. That's that's actually really where their where their their influence on me is. Um, both of my parents have bought one record a week, um, every week, um, including now um, since nineteen you know sixty five. So you know when you extrapolate that across their entire lives. <laughs> um, you know, they have, they have 10,000 albums, basically, or, or, or more than that, probably, yeah. on CD and vinyl. Um, and uh, also beyond that, you know, my, they're both they're both um, pretty much audiophiles as well. Like, my, my dad sort of drives the audiophile ship um, with the stereo system and all that stuff. But, uh, but if it doesn't sound good enough, you know, he's got to hear from it from my mom. So, um, yeah, so like they're, they're really record collectors and audiophiles, but, but dabble in, in playing music as well. And my mom, later on in life... Um, became really passionate about playing the drums. So my mom plays the drums now. Yeah. Have you recorded her playing the drums? 
I have not actually. I would like to, um, but uh, no, she's uh, she, she she hasn't embarked on the solo record yet. I think, I think she should, but uh, but um, yeah, it's not too late. Yeah, is is there a certain point in time where you can recall just uh, the concept of of music being recorded and and how that appealed to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, at least I, I I can recall the the moment where. I mean, I can kind of recall what made my brain think about sound objectively. Like, um, one was was really like I think it was probably I was in grade two, and my parents bought me, um, you know, like a nice uh, I don't know I don't know what the right term for it is now, but like a ghetto blaster um, that had a five bound uh, graphic equalizer on it, so you could adjust you know bass and treble and mids and all that. And um, um, and uh, I remember like. Um, you know, always playing with that and adjusting it and hearing how it made my tapes like sound different and stuff like that. But um, but the time that it really occurred to me that there was something more complex than just bass and treble was really actually Metallica's um, uh, and Justice for All. Um, you know, when I got that record on cassette, I always loved the, I actually loved the sound of the record and I loved the album, but I always noticed that there wasn't really any bass guitar on the record at all. Um, so I remember always turning up the bass knob on my, on my stereo trying to get the bass guitar to come out more in the mix. And of course that doesn't work because it's, it's more complicated than that. Um, all that does is make the kick drum bassier (laughs) or or whatever. So, so, um, what makes the guitars bassier. So, so that was when I first started thinking like, I need, I need to be able to multi-track instruments where I can adjust the individual instruments so I can turn the bass up for Metallica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, as as DBS starts, like uh, uh, your, your first demo uh, was done with Benny Carlos. I'm wondering if you could tell me about just was was that your actual first time in a recording studio? And, and I guess what, what, how 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 young are you at this point? Dude? Um, okay, so when we recorded the the first DBS with Ben Carlos, um, um, I would have been that would have been the summer of for me. It's probably the summer of of, of ninth grade. Um, and for the other guys in the band, it would have been the summer of eighth grade. Um, so yeah, like I, um, we were jamming already and had a had a band and stuff like that. Um, but we'd only ever recorded on a ghetto blaster. I didn't have a four track recorder or anything like that yet. So um, yeah, so we just uh, you know wanted to make a tape of our recording so we could sell a tape at our shows um, and uh, basically found the cheapest studio in Vancouver, which was over on the west side, kind of by the Burrard Street Bridge, and, and went over there and recorded on a two-inch 16-track uh, machine um, with that guy, which was in his basement. So it was a basement studio, but with a full, like, two-inch 24-track or 16-track recorder. Do you, do you remember asking him, like, uh, just general questions about what was going on and to, to, to get a feel for, for the studio? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I thought it was so cool. Like, I remember, like, being the singer, um, you know, I didn't, usually, usually vocals are, are one of the last things to be recorded on a record. So, you know, like, the guys probably played it all live, you know, like, but I remember maybe, maybe Danny made a mistake on the bass, and I remember him kind of doing a punch in, you know, because it's a multi track recording, so you can fix just the bass if you want. And I remember him fixing that and thinking, oh, that's, cool like how powerful is that and and then it was time for me to sing and i got to go into the vocal booth and um have all the instruments played back in my headphones and i could overdub um you know my own vocals separately after the fact and that was my first time really experiencing um you know what kind of possibilities were available in a in an actual multi-track studio so so that was that was really my my introduction to that experience yeah 
what, what was it like, I guess, going into the next tape, I guess, Catch-22, which, which, which was also with Benny, like just applying some of those uh, uh, theories and lessons learned from the first tape? Yeah, well, that was the first time that I really thought, okay, well, well if we can do, um, you know, do a vocal overdub, why can't we do a keyboard overdub? So, so I remember on that session I brought my synthesizer, because I, I played piano, and, um, you know, just played just a little bit of synth behind a couple of songs. Like, so that was really, like, that was the first time really doing any production. Like, instead of just being one guitar, one bass, one drums, and one vocal, or whatever, which is what our band consisted of, you know, deciding to make the record a little bit different than it would be live, you know, by playing a little bit of a keyboard line underneath it and that kind of thing. So, yeah. so that was probably the first time I ever came up with like a production idea for a song. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Going on into, I guess, uh, break it. It, it, it kind of this is where uh, this this long term relationship with with uh, Cecil English starts. I'm wondering if you could tell me about just meeting Cecil the first time and then kind of expanding on that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I mean, Cecil, we met him, um, uh, we actually were playing a, kind of a lonely Tuesday night, rainy Tuesday night Vancouver show at, at the uh, Hungry Eye, which was, a, which was a club that had been around in various forms for years. Um, um, most recently, it was the Hindenburg. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just like, you know, hardly anybody in the audience. We were really, still really young, 14 years old, and Cecil came and... Um, uh, after our set, we still, we still gave it our all, uh, sing our hearts out and all that stuff, because we wanted to be good. And um, he came and offered us a free day of studio time in, in, in Profile Studios, which was his studio. Um, and we actually already had a free day there, too, as a coincidence, because we'd won a battle of the bands in North Vancouver where we'd been awarded a free day. So um, all of a sudden we had a couple of free days and, uh, and went in there and, um, you know, to record. I thought it was to record Tales from the Crib. Um, so that was actually the first recording in that studio. And, and that is, uh, you know, Profile Studios is similar in uh, experience to recording at Studio 80 with Benny Carlos, only it was a professional um, commercial facility. Like instead of being a basement studio at someone's house, a project studio, it was, uh, it was very, very much a pro studio. You know, it was where No Means No and SNFU and DOA and like, you know, professional bands had, had recorded. Um, and, um, yeah, so the experience of it was, was bigger and, and better and, you know, and, and the gear was more well-maintained and the console sounded better. Um, so everything just sounded clear right away. And, uh, you know, we were just making a proper record right away. And also with Cecil, like, um, you know, he just, he just was more experienced and, uh, you know, had more suggestions, taught us how to how to tune drums, how to make the sounds better, the source. Like, I remember him, like, thinking that Andy needed to improve his guitar sound, so he ran and borrowed a, a really nice uh, other Marshall, you know, amplifier from his roommate or whatever, and just trying to, you know, and had his friend come and tune the drums, make sure they sounded good, and, and this really kind of put the focus into not just the recording, but, but into how the instruments sound before they're recorded, which is, which is even more important than the recording itself sometimes. And, and, and that relationship uh, evolved over a lot of years because he recorded four full-length albums for us um, that were often done in pieces. So, so literally at one point in time, I was just giving him a check for $400 every month um, for years and just coming in um, every for for a day a month and working on these albums, um, you know, which is what basically resulted in the band 
releasing, you know, a hundred songs or whatever that he recorded. It was it was years and years of, of, of taking the bus up the commercial drive uh, from North Vancouver for me um, and, uh, and and working in that studio with him for years. Yeah, what what was it like working with him one on one on when when you would go, you know, uh, just just once a month? It was just awesome, you know, because like um, for me, um, like in, in my whole life, I, I when I was a kid, I, I hated being spoken to. Like as a kid, I, I wanted to be spoken to as an adult. Um, so adults just spoke to me as, as as like colleagues or peers rather than children. And I was a child at the time; I was fourteen years old. Um, so I, I really like people that treated me like I had the mental capacity that they did because I felt that I did. And um, and uh, Cecil always treated us. He never treated us like children. He always uh, treated us as like adults. And and, uh, and also, you know, he would invite invite me over to go hang out at his house. Like we'd go, we we go and hang out after after the session. Either, you know, go for dinner at like the twenty uh, four hour uh, Vietnamese restaurant up the street, or we would uh, we would um, you know whenever go and you know hang out, drink a beer or whatever. You know, so so it was it was yeah. It, it, I, we became really really good friends during that time and. And uh, and then would uh, even though he was you know twenty five years older than me, we would, we would actually hang out outside of the studio all the time too. Yeah, cool. Now, as this is going on, like when when do you get your your four track? So I got my four track pretty much. Um, I can't remember the exact time. I mean, I know I got it. I think I got it for my my fourteenth birthday. Um, so DBS would have started recording when we were thirteen, maybe. Um, and it was either my fourteenth or fifteenth birthday. Uh, it might have been my fiftieth birthday. It's hard for me to know for sure now. Um, but um, you know, I really bought it to do demos for DBS because I wanted to, you know, make a stereo recording of our band in the jam space, and then you know, overdub my vocals onto the remaining track, and um, you know, be able to change them or, or or play with them, so I could you know, come up with better vocal lines or whatever. Also, also, I just was interested in it. I liked being in the studio, like in those days of recording a profile because because I'd have to take the bus all the way from North Vancouver over there. Um, I didn't want to do that day after day after day. So I would actually ask, ask Cecil if I could sleep at the studio and he'd just lock me in at night and I'd just sleep on the floor in front of the console um, because I also just loved being in the studio. Like I liked the lights and like just being in a room filled with warm equipment. I just would, uh, so I'd actually sleep at the studio. Sometimes the other guys would all head home to North Vanna for recording, but I'd still just sleep there overnight because I just wanted to get as much experience as possible. So, so yeah, but back to the four track. Yeah, like I, I got it for my birthday when I was really young. Like I was either, I was in grade nine or, or, or maybe grade 10. Um, and um, yeah, I, I also had always planned on making maybe some solo recordings with it or something like that, but, but I, I still haven't finished mixing that record like literally now so yeah so i never never got around to doing that what's uh what what what's that solo album about what 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 what, what kind of music were you making uh, well i was uh, i was just trying to make noise music actually i called it um world of shit and it was just like white noise and distortion pedals and and like nasty like delays and stuff like it was just like experimental noise uh music i just wanted to make some nasty shit and then also um also uh this is acoustic guitar playing too. I was dabbling and playing the guitar at the time, which is another hobby. I, I mean, I play guitar in a band now, I guess, but I've never been all that good at it. So, <laughs> so it's also I, I just got so busy singing and recording bands that you know didn't have a lot of time to record myself or or uh, maybe you know learn a whole other instrument for a band that I don't for, for, for an instrument I don't even play in the band. <laughs> but, yeah. But I've actually almost done the solo record now. Like, I think if this, uh, if we go into another kind of uh, 
lockdown in BC, I'll probably have it done because I, I almost finished it during the beginning of the pandemic in, in, in April and May. I, I closed down the studio for, for six weeks uh, before we really knew what was going on. And I just, uh, I worked on it all that time and I'm, I'm almost done now. That's incredible. <laughs> so for 35, 30 years later or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Now, um, with with recording DBS on the four track, did did any of that ever surface or or get mixed into like a profile session or? No, like our first demo cassette was recorded by me on a Ghetto Blaster, but it was just a stereo recording, maybe mono, off a Ghetto Blaster that I just dubbed on the tapes. Um, that's called self-exploratory, so that was before Benny Carlos. But uh, no, the four-track stuff uh, never resulted in any records. Um, it was a bit too... Um, it, it resulted in records for other bands, mind you. Um, some, even some notable bands, but but not ours, because we were along in our career at that point where we were already comfortable working in a 24-track studio with Cecil, and also we were playing lots of shows where, you know, we were getting paid 500 bucks to play the odd show, so we could afford to record um, in a proper studio. So there wasn't like an aesthetic thing where I thought it would have been cool to do a four-track uh, demo for us. I, I thought it was way cooler to do a you know, try to do a clear sounding recording. Um, however, for lots of local bands in East Van and North Van, I, I did lots of recordings that were even pressed on vinyl and stuff like that to to my four track cassette recorder. Yeah. Now, uh, what what is what is the first band that you that you felt comfortable enough to you know tr- track on that four track? Well, I did downloads for local um, North Van like teenage bands like our our friends like I did uh, Utopia. Um, or Stick Shift, they were called later on, both horrible bad names. Um, the, um, you know, I did their kind of little demo recording. Um, and uh, so that was like the first thing, but I don't know if that was, it was not as comparable. I was just like, went over to their house after school and put up four mics and recorded on my own four mics. So, so uh, you know, I bought some 58s, uh, SM58s from working on my summer job at Playland um, and that kind of thing. Um, so the first band that I actually like that actually like hired me to record them on four track cassette would have definitely been um, Submission Hold, yeah. um, who did pre- who did press it on vinyl. Um, so like I did uh, the seven inch. I'm pretty sure it's Garlic to Victory, Garlic for Victory. Um, so like their early Submission Hold recordings um, were were done on my four track cassette. Did you where where did you record those? I recorded them at the Submission Hold House, which was a house on uh, First and, and Victoria in East Van, where many famous bands came and played over the years as well. Like, it was uh, probably like the most um, premier basement for punk shows in, in Vancouver. Um, and the recording was actually a collaboration. We tried to step up our game a little bit. So it's actually, it actually was a collaboration between me, uh, Steve McBean from Black Mountain, and James Farwell from Bison. So uh, James Farwell was going to recording school at the time. So so he had access to um, um, a DAP machine to mix down to. Like, we'd record it analog, but mix it down and capture the mix digitally. And then Steve McBean had um, some microphones um, for the vocals. So I believe that I recorded the, the bass, drums, and guitar. And then that night, DBS had to open up for seven seconds in Seattle. So we ripped across the border that afternoon, and I went and played the seven seconds. And then that next day, while I was coming back from Seattle, um, McBean recorded the vocals. And then a couple days later, James Farwell came over and mixed it down onto um, a digital cassette, a dance tape, um, just because that was a better way of not having... 
too much noise on the recording or loss in, in those days because sets are very noisy. So, yeah. so recording, mixing it down digitally kind of um, saved you one layer of noise, basically. Now, have you, have you listened to those recordings at any time recently? Like, uh... No, I have the seven inch and I'd like to listen to it, actually. It'd be, it'd be fun to check it out. Um, um, a, a few of them I've heard, like... Um, over the years, but it's been honestly, it's been a long time. I, I haven't, uh, I haven't thought about it. I still have some of the original master recordings of that stuff, but it's in my parents' crawl space, which I, I, uh, you know, I, ne- I never look in there. I basically have a time capsule in my parents' crawl space of all my early recordings um, that I, um, I don't plan on opening that box for a little bit, for a little bit yet. So yeah, maybe in my fifties, I, I plan on diving deep into it. <laughs> What, what can you say about some of the other bands that you recorded around that time? Like your the mid '90s period of of, of your or your career isn't really uh, captured on Discogs or anything like that. Like uh, but, yeah. So uh, w- one of the things that I have in my house is is the Sucklings tape. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Sucklings tape. Yeah. Another North Carolina high school band. Uh, all, all our good friends uh, yeah. played in that band. So so that's one that that um, we did um, and uh, or that I did and uh, I did. Um, Oh, I did a metal band. I can't remember what they were called. Uh, no, they were called Necronomicon, probably along with thousands of other metal bands. Are called that. Yeah. Um, I did. Um, but yeah, there's some dudes that live on the street for me. Um, uh, for other Eastbound bands, I did. I did the Dunderheads, who were kind of like yeah. a skinhead band. Uh, we're like kind of like you know, like um, like kind of like street punk, kind of like British style punk. And, um, um, and I uh, did that, and, and Mark from the Dunderheads, um, um, when, he, when he came up to North Island, I used to mix down onto my dad's computer, like, like I'd record the four-track cassette analog, and, um, and, uh, and then I would mix it down to computer, like my dad had just a regular old, like, sound blaster sound card for his, his PC, yeah. so I just, like, you know, again, to save that level of noise, if you mix down a cassette, front cassette, and then you print it on a cassette, you know, you're ending up with a lot of hiss. So, um, so I mixed down to the computer, and, and Mark from the Dunderheads, who was like a big, tall, uh, bald, kind of like tough-looking guy with a leather jacket, like walked up the street um, in my parents' like suburban neighborhood in Lynn Valley, North Vancouver, and um, to, to come and, you know, he took the bus up from Eastbound to come mix down at my parents' house uh, one day, and, um, and it was in the summertime. It was like a weekday, and the neighbors called the cops on him <laughs> for being like a tough guy. Like, he got, like, the cops came to the house because they had heard, like, a punk had, like, entered the neighborhood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Um, and, um, yeah, and I did that, and I did another band called Tea and Two Slices, um, which is a guy named Jay Fliss, who was in Insult to Injury, which was the band that was before Submission Hold. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a band that sounded, they sounded like a Crim Shrine or, like, kind of Bay Area, like, crusty melodic punk. And I recorded that at the Georgia Street House. Um, which is kind of a notorious punk house as well, mm-hmm. um, right on Commercial Drive in Georgia. Um, and I did that when I was 15, and my dad would just, like, drive me over there with all my recording gear, mic stands and mics and stuff, and, and just, like, um, drop me off for the weekend, and, um, and I'd, like, you know, I'd record for, I, I charged six, uh, six beers a day. For a six-pack, I'd record you all day. For a 12-pack, I'd record you all weekend, because <laughs> I wasn't old enough to buy beer. So, um, so, yeah, they bought me some beer, and then they, like, dumpster dive some potatoes and then like get a bunch of drugs and we recorded the record yeah <laughs> and i recorded the record so so that was an interesting experience um like yeah um, <laughs> um 
Yeah, those are, those are the ones that come to mind, at least. I guess I also, and, then, and, then, and then, you know, the next stage was, I guess I recorded, I probably recorded um, your your band as well. Um, um, not Self Esteem Project, but I, but I, but I was it was it Tebow that I recorded? No, um, in your your yeah. parents' house maybe. That was a uh, hooray for everything. That was uh, hooray for everything. Thank you. Yeah. Hooray for everything. I have listened to recently, actually, and I thought it sounded really good. Actually, I, I liked that one. Um, I, I, remember, I remember doing that that night. Um, I remember it was like a rainy night in the fall, and I was old enough to drive at that point in time. So I think yeah. I, I think I was able to to drive out to whatever suburb you lived in uh, in those days and, and record you guys there. Yeah, I, I actually have the masters in, in my apartment. I, there's there's a couple songs that we didn't finish that I'm, I'm kind of curious, oh. kind of curious about that. But, uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now, one, cool. that, one that I am actually curious about is that uh, a band that never did a demo tape uh, properly, but Plains of Abraham, but I kind of think that you might have recorded them live at Seelan Hall. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't remember recording them live at Seelan Hall, but, but, but I might have. Um, I kind of feel like yeah, I did record Plains of Abraham, maybe, but um, but I, I'm just not sure. Like, um, I, 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 it's not on my personal discography that I recorded them. Um, but that said, like, you know, that, that era of my life's discography is, um, is something that I, I, I extrapolated from memory. <laughs> you know, I my memory. I didn't, I didn't write it down at the time. So, um, so my memory could be failing me. I, I don't actually know about that. I'm, I, I may have recorded them live. Oh, maybe I did. Yeah. Maybe I brought the four track down and set it on the stage at Stephen Hall and recorded it that way. I think you're right that I did that. Um, but I'll be down if I if I know where those cassettes are. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't sure. seen that around. Um, sure. uh, last time I last time I moved, I, I put those four track cassettes away in the storage kit, uh, area, and I, I don't remember seeing that. But, but maybe I did. How, how did you go about starting a studio in your parents' basement? Yeah, with with Pro Tools. Like, how how did that scenario come about? Well, pretty much it was just like like straight up. It was just that all of a sudden the technology was there. Like when Pro Tools first came out, or, or even for that matter, if you wanted to record an EDAC or, or, or an early digital format like that, you know, you were looking at you were looking at six thousand dollars or more just to get the recorder, and then you would still need a mixer as well because you know you need um, some sort of a mixer for the tape machine to play back to and from and and for you to adjust levels. So Pro Tools, when 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 finally they were able to put all of that into software and do it on a computer. Um, that was still really expensive too. That would have been a twenty thousand dollars system um, because you would have needed an incredibly powerful computer for its day, um, and, um, and and you know that would have been out of the range of money that I would have had or been able to borrow from the bank or anything like that. So when when so really the the mark of the of the home digital studio revolution, um, which I was very much a part of, was was pretty much coincided with with Apple coming out with the the, the G four. Like the the first Apple, like the, the Apple G3 was was fast enough to record a band, but the software and the hardware wasn't quite there yet. Maybe um, when they came up with the G4, that was kind of like a new um, level of computing that enabled you to have 24 tracks and mix and have a few effects and record 24 tracks at once. Like the hard drives are fast enough, the memory was fast enough, everything like that. Um, and then uh, at the literally the same day that it came out, that computer came out, Pro Tools released a system called the Digi 001. Um, which was a, a 16 input recorder box that you could attach um, with Firewire um, to a Mac and record a band. And um, so when that became apparent that I was coming out, 
and I was becoming, I was graduated from high school this time and working at coffee shops and stuff and knew I wanted to record all the time. Um, and I had a few bands that wanted, wanted me to record them, which I'd planned on either renting studios or renting equipment to do it. Uh, notably, it was the band Reserve 34. They were like, hey, you know, we just want you to record our full-length album. Like, we don't care if you're inexperienced or young or you don't have any gear. We've just decided that you're the guy. And I was like, well, I want to be the guy. So, um, um, so I basically um, I took out a loan for $5,000 uh, from the bank. And, uh, you know, my parents were generous enough to co-sign on a loan. Um, uh, and so, um, cause I had no credit cause I was 19 years old. Um, and I, I bought that system and the day it came out, you know, I, my friend Paul Bodak came over and we recorded some acoustic guitar and stuff so I could learn how to do it. Did a little folk record just so I could learn the software. And keep in mind, I never really used a computer at this time. Like I, I didn't even have email at this time. Um, at this point, I, I was really not a computer guy at all as a teenager. Yeah. I uh, wasn't interested in them at all. And, um, and uh, yeah, I learned how to use the software. I taught myself. I read the instruction manual, which is 400 pages long. I read it twice. I'd actually read it at the coffee shop when there was no customers in there, like in the dead part of the afternoon where it quiet down and just be reading. I'm uh, sitting beside the cappuccino machine, reading the Pro Tools manual, and reading the book that's called uh, Modern Recording Techniques, um, which is basically if you go to recording school, what they do is teach you the book Modern Recording Techniques. So I just bought the book or borrowed it from the library, and I read the book twice, and I read the Pro Tools manual twice and then so, uh, my, my brothers were older than me uh, so they'd already moved out and I turned my brother's bedroom into a recording studio and uh, got the Pro Tools system and Reserve 34 came over and we tracked their full-length album um, in my parents' basement uh, to Pro Tools yeah. in probably the year 2000. <laughs> so, how, yeah. how, how long did it take to make that record? Uh, it took a long time for me to mix it. Um, like uh, recording it was 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 didn't take too long. Like I mean, Lucas is a beast on the drums as as he still is, and you know, um, so he probably took him four hours, um, you know, or two hours or something because he's just like, you know, twenty years old and fucking ripped and ready to lay it down. Um, and then like the the guitars and bass went down pretty easy too. I think we probably tracked them all together actually. Um, and um, and then and then not just vocals. I did them later on. Um, I recorded them in the nude uh, in, in, in the room with me. So it was just me and him alone. He's like, you mind if I get naked? I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, he, he was screaming his head off in the fucking nude. And then my mom came home after going to the grocery store and opened up the door, and there's Matt Smith with his, with his, with his junk hanging out, uh, screaming his head off uh, in her basement, um, which didn't which did shock her. She didn't care. She thought it was, she thought it was awesome. So, um, <laughs> so, so I just, um, but the mixing it was hard because, like, learning to use the technology and stuff like that, like, that, that came relatively easy to me. I, I, I feel like maybe I am technically inclined, even if I didn't, um, you know, know that prior to that so much. Um, but the mixing it is hard because that's what, that's where there's all these techniques and skills that, um, that, you know, you just have to build up with experience or be taught. And I, I really didn't have, I mean, Cecil mentored me a little bit with the recording, but for mixing, I, I really learned that on my own. Um, and reading a book as well. I read a book that's called um, Behind the Glass where it teaches you how to, uh, or top pros teach you tricks for mixing. Um, and yeah, so that's what I did to learn that. And, uh, and then I ended up remixing the record five years later once I had more skills and the record got pressed onto vinyl. I remixed it. And by that time I already had a professional studio. Like I, I'd grown, I'd already grown so much at that time. So I made it, I made it, I made it better after the fact. Now, uh, one of the other records that you did make in the basement was the, uh, the forget everything, you know, EP by, by, by DBS. Now I'm wondering, mm -hmm. um, 
there's kind of a, a like a poetry to to the fact that you know you'd recorded uh, your first demo on, on a boombox and then you yourself recorded the last EP like in in your basement. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just recall just the experience of that, the 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 emotional weight of recording that, knowing that it's the last EP. Yeah, it was significant to me um, because, like, also, like, I felt like it was a full circle thing, like, throughout the years of, um, well, as you stated, it's sort of a full, uh, there is a poetic uh, aspect to it because it wasn't just a recording, like, we, you know, we started as as kids who just loved music and learned how to play some instruments and stuff, and then by the end of it, it wasn't just that I recorded it and mixed it, which I did, it was also that Andy released it on his record label, like Andy Ink had Ink Records, which had become passionate about it, and we were booking our own tours and Ryan owned the van and you know we'd, we'd come so far as people that we that we were basically self-sufficient DIY band so even though we had sort of success early on like in the mainstream uh, media like music and stuff like that um, what we'd chosen to do with that was not to become more mainstream but but, but, but become more DIY um, and more self-sufficient and that's actually the direction that it was the direction we had to, to go. It was the direction we chose to go because that was just like who we all were, um, which I think is evident in the fact that you know Andy is a self-employed artist and I am a self-employed recording engineer, and so on. Like that's just like that was the spirit of the the, the two guys that wrote the music in the band. Me and Andy um, were both that type of guy. So for us to kind of like, and also Andy being the graphic designer for DBS as well, is another is another element of it because all albums need uh, good graphic design as well to be good albums. So. So, um, so yeah, so, so I, I think it was, it, there was a, 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 it felt like a conclusion to um, a, a long path of learning um, that I think is actually our best uh, EP or our best recording uh, ever. Like, I think it's actually the best music that, uh, that Andy wrote. And I think that it's our best playing for sure, because we obviously were getting better as uh, musicians. Um, but, but I think it's also, I, I mean, I don't know if it's our best sounding record, but, but for me it kind of is because, um, because I feel like we captured, um, we captured just us, you know, it's just purely us, you know, and, and if you don't like the us, you, know, you wouldn't like it, but if you do, then, then I think you would. So yeah. I, I, for, for me, when I hear it, it sounds really honest. Um, and, and, that's, and, I, and for me, it's emotional to listen to it on that, on that level. Yeah. Now, um, I guess maybe at, at, at this particular time, it would be kind of another full circle moment, but you've since gone on to work in, in several other studios. But, but what can you say about moving into the out of your parents' basement into uh, Profile Studio B to, to start Wreckage Recorders? Yeah, it was a risk, you know. Like, um, I mean, in, in between my parents' basement and, um, and Profile Studio B, I had, um, I, I moved out of my parents' house, you know, naturally, and I lived with roommates, where my roommates were very supportive and let me rent basically two bedrooms for the price of one. You have to keep in mind that Vancouver was cheap back in these days. We rented an entire house for $1,300 um, that had nine bedrooms. But um, I, I, I turned two bedrooms into my uh, area. So one was my control room, and where I slept was my um, recording room my live room, if you will. So um, I had that for about six or eight months. And then, um, you know, and things were busy. You know, I was, I bounced for calling all the time. Um, I got fired from my previous job. And then I had another part-time job and that company went bankrupt, um, working for a media company. Um, and I, I just, um, I just, uh, Cecil offered me to take over Profile B. Um, and the rent was like a thousand a month or eleven hundred a month, which was, which was a lot for me. That was a big risk for me in those days. Um, but I took the risk and, um, I had a few bands also encouraging me to, um, to do it. Like, um, the band Three Inches of Blood, who became a, 
pretty famous metal band across Canada for many years. Um, they were just starting out and wanted to record their first full length, and they decided that they wanted me to do it. Um, so I thought, well, the Three Inches of Blood want to record a full length with me, and I got this great space for a thousand bucks a month. I'm going to uh, I'm going to roll the dice. Um, so I rolled the dice and took over the space and um, started recording all those bands. So some of which became kind of chuckle bands for a period of time. There's a, such a large portion of bands uh, in the city and outside the city that you've recorded that I, it's, I'm going to be kind of jumping anachronistically here. But but what, what can you say about recording with Three Inches of Blood as they were coming up? Well, for me, it was challenging because um, like heavy metal bands are challenging to record all the time. It's a, I find it a challenging form of music, despite the fact that I do a fair amount of it. Um, so I just really wanted to, I, I just saw that, like, they were becoming really popular locally, people loved them. The songs were fucking great, you know, just really memorable, fun, classic metal songs. Um, I grew up listening to that kind of thing. Iron Maiden was my favorite band when I was, you know, in elementary school, so I, was, I, I loved the music and stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, so I just, um, I, I felt a ton of pressure to make it good, and, and that, that, like the Reserve 34 record, I mixed that record about 15 times to get it sounding as good as it does, and, and of course, I could still just make it sound even better now. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so for me, it was really fun. And, and those guys were all really young, too. Like, we were all 20, right? So, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, so we were just trying really hard to all um, make careers in the music industry and, and make something good. And, um, and um, I mean, I, I think we did, you know. Like, I, I love that record. So it's a raw metal record that's actually almost hard to make it make something like that these days because the tools are always there for people to kind of over polish things i mean we use pro tools but but it was just basic microphones it was just a bunch of 57s and stuff it was not i didn't have any fancy outboard gear it was just the computer the room and then the guys in profile studio a would let me borrow a few fancy mics they really let me borrow a nice neumann um, vocal microphone to record cam pipes you know with like so i didn't have to record uh him with a 58 or whatever so um yeah so so it was it was a really exciting time and and i was i was working in those days um i was busy enough to do it too i i would work um 12 hours a day you know and then when the band would leave i'd work for another three or four i i, I had no life like I, I remember one one period of time that year i remember literally working for three months straight Nine, 90 I did, I did 90 12 hour days in a row and some days were longer than that yeah. Um, so yeah, all I did was work, and, and all my relationships fell apart. My bands were breaking up. Like um, everything else in my life was was, was uh, completely uh, unsustainable with that kind of workload. Yeah, yeah. Were you okay with that? Like, what what was that like as, as a psychological effect? I liked it. I was just like, uh, you know, to to my my girlfriend at the time, who I did like uh, a lot, you know, or did love a lot. I was just like, well, if you don't support me, fuck you. <laughs> Pretty much, like I was just like, work was all that mattered. And nothing else mattered beyond that. And if anybody was going to um, try to tell me to work less, i just say, fuck you. So, yeah, for me, I, psychologically, I, I think that I eventually um, got to the end of that period of time and was like, okay, I need to have balance or else I'm going to, like, you know, be super depressed. But but I didn't, I didn't um, yeah, I, I mean, I told you that for sure. I, did, I, I just I didn't have to do it. But my wife now always says, you have the worst boss in the world because I schedule myself to work these incredibly long stretches of time, you know, yeah. um, the joke being that I'm my own boss. <laughs> <laughs> um moving back into some bands and kind of moving from, I guess, the, the, the maximalist approach of something like Three Inches of Blood, uh, you also had this really long relationship with the Pack AD being this, like, two-piece, compact, bluesy band. I'm wondering if you can get into 
just recording those albums with 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 Maya and Becky. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, like Maya and Becky um, have been my best customers um, for my whole life, for sure. Um, um, they've recorded all their records with me. Um, um, so like I've done whatever it is, I don't know, eight albums or something. Um, I'm you know I'm, I'm doing even more stuff with them on some level uh, going forward too. Like this, so they're they're still coming uh, working with me. Um, even when they seem like they're going to break up, they still recorded an album with me. They're like, yeah, we think we'll take a year off and the next thing you know, the fucking time. So, um, yeah, they, they've been, they, they love things to be, just be, be raw and natural and be what it is. Um, you know, and, and sometimes I think we could have taken those early recordings farther and laid down a bass guitar or, you know, put some keys on there or whatever. Um, like, so, it, but I mean, for me, it's like, um, those people, like, why the Takiri comes to me is because they trust me not to fuck up what they're trying to do. Like, they they have a vision for their band, um, and that is something that they're very much, like, committed to. And um, and they know that I'm not going to try to take that away from them. Um, you know, if we choose to, like, some of the later records, we add more overdubs, we do more stuff, um, we polish them more, because they've grown, and, and, and so have I, and stuff like that, and, and I'm probably a little bit more comfortable being like, hey, you know, let's check some bass on this part now, or something, but, um, but yeah, they, they, they just want it to be recorded to tape, without punch-ins or overdubs, just make raw, natural rock records that are just, um, you know, are not trying to be something that they're not, um, and, and I, and I, I think that I'm a good guy to record that for them because because there's a lot of people in the world that like maybe their musical tastes are like uh, you know Celine Dion or maybe their musical taste is Nickelback or something like music that's incredibly polished and thought out in that way. Whereas for me, I I I like well not maybe those bands particularly, but but I like polished um, complex music as well. But uh, but I also like because I came from these basses and recordings and, and punk rock and stuff like that and recording things to sound like shit, basically. Um, I, I have an affinity for that as well. And, um, yeah, so for me, um, um, I think that I, I was comfortable with the idea of letting them just be raw and crazy, um, you know, rather than trying to be like, okay, here's, now you have to do it, do it quick, because that's the rule of recording rock music. Or you have to, uh, you know, double the guitars and overdub the bass and, and, you know, double the vocals and all that stuff, because that's the rule. Like, there are people that believe in these aesthetics of, of rock production that, that cannot be broken. Um, and, and I don't believe in any of those things. So, um, cause I like raw power by the Stooges and I like Crimp Shrine and I like, you know, I like fucking shit that sounds like shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, so, so it's like, um, so I think that because I'm comfortable with that idea and I'm comfortable with my name on that idea, um, that works, that, that made them comfortable with me. And, uh, and, and then their fans are comfortable with it too, because the records ended up getting, uh, they ended up selling tons of records and, and, and be making a career out of their band and playing for tons of people all over the world. So, um, so I guess I guess you know letting them um, you know mount their own ship um, was probably not a bad idea. I mean, maybe if we polished the fuck out of it, they would be an even bigger band. Yeah, who knows? I mean, we'll never know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but 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 they did what they wanted to do, and and uh, and it worked for them this far. Yeah. Plus, they can always make that record in the future whenever they want to. Absolutely. You know, music doesn't end. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. Um, moving to another two piece, like, uh, can, can you explain how, how the, how the Japan droids got introduced to you and, and how you ended up making those records? Yeah. So Japan droids, um, uh, Brian, I'm pretty sure it was Brian from Japan droids. Um, 
Um, they, they were a band, and I've heard of them locally, um, but I didn't know those. As, I didn't know them as guys, and um, they um, they um, booked a show um, uh, at the Anza Club because they, they didn't have any shows, so they booked their own show. Um, that's what the bands do who want to play shows and uh, they asked Ghost House my band to play because I guess they'd heard us and liked our band um, and uh, and, um, and we played together and when I watched them I loved their band because I, I really reminded me of Husker Du or something like that or, or early like SSD kind of punk rock which is some of my favorite uh, punk music and um, so I loved them and I remember being in the audience and I looked at them and I was like fuck this is the kind of music that I would totally love but they'll, they'll never get anywhere because it's like nobody listens to this obscure kind of punk anymore. Like I just thought, no one's going to appreciate how cool this is, and that's too that. And um, and then and then they they, they called me um, to record them out of the blue. Um, just uh, and we met up and we recorded their first album in one day, and then we did the vocals in a half day, and then I mixed it in one day. So we recorded the whole thing for six hundred bucks, and uh, it took two and a half days or something. And um, yeah, went on to sell like whatever tens of thousands of copies all over the world. Um, and yeah, I mean that record kind of sounds like shit, basically. Um, <laughs> um, but um, but uh, that's I guess what people liked about it, and you know they they wrote a wave of um, they wrote a no wave, um, you know whatever. Um, kind of vibe and, and for people that have been hearing all this really extremely polished rock and punk you know because this is also coming out of the tail end of like you know fat record music which is just like pretty sterile you know what I mean I want to say like not to say like no effects are bad down or like that but the production is squeaky clean you know what I mean it doesn't take any chances like uh, mm. in sound quality or there, there's no rawness to it it's it's polished uh, to every edge it shines so um, so I think that for a lot of people who are tiring of that but still like the spirit of punk rock and, and, and rock and rock and roll they heard that and were like fuck finally <laughs> you know finally someone that sounds like a real band um, so yeah so that really evolved from there and then, and then again I worked with them on um um, every record they've made since then. Um, so yeah. And then uh, th- th- that would obviously en- encompass uh, a few studios. Now, did you did you travel outside of Vancouver to record with Japan Droids? I, I, I... Uh, no. Um, sometimes on on Discogs it says that um, that um, um, part of Celebration Rock was recorded in um, in New Orleans, something like that. Um, that's wrong. Um, that, that that's incorrect. Uh, Wikipedia, I believe, says that too. It's wrong. Yeah. Um, all of it was recorded at the Hive in Vancouver. Every every last note of it. Um, it was written partly in, in in New Orleans, and that's because they were so busy touring off the backs of Post Nothing that they just didn't have time to be home and jam. And when they finally were home, they didn't want to hang out with, with each other. They wanted to spend time with their partners, or you know, doing anything but being in their band twenty four hours a day. So so they they, they were having a hard time um, writing uh, their second record. So so they actually went and rented a big house in the middle of nowhere in New Orleans um, just because they thought it'd be inspiring. Or maybe it was Memphis, actually. Whatever it was. Um, and, um, and wrote, and they wrote um, um, the al- uh, some of the album there. But they came up and recorded it in Vancouver with me. Yeah, okay, okay. Now, um, you have gone to other places to record. Uh, one, one that I'm thinking of uh, more, more recently is, is going to Bulgaria to record t- uh, TDK, the, the, the post-hardcore band. I'm just <clears> wondering... Yeah how that even came about because because that's 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 a that's a trip yeah well it sure is like uh, yeah i've done a few now like i've done records in um yeah belgium bulgaria um 
Cuba, Cuba, Philadelphia, um, like New York, a couple of times. Um, you know, other places in the states and Canada, Toronto. You know, a few times I got Winnipeg. Um, but uh, you know, so how that came about was, um, um, I mean, basically, like some of the records that I did got popular in Europe. Um, particularly, like specifically with TDK, is that White Lung um, is quite liked in uh, in, in Europe. Um, and I did all their records except for one, um, but I did five albums for them, and. Um, um, and, and a band called Brutus from Belgium loved their sound and came to Canada and recorded with me twice. Mm-hmm. And then their band became more popular and more famous. And, uh, and then people in Eastern Europe started to love Brutus, um, even though they haven't toured there, actually. Um, they've only toured Western Europe to the best. Uh, they have toured Hungary, I guess. But, um, but yeah, they, have, they haven't been to Bulgaria um, or to the Balkans uh, around there, to my best of my knowledge. But um, um, but yeah, those guys in Bulgaria loved uh, loved the sound of the Brutus albums, and they just straight up reached out to me. I was actually in Philadelphia recording uh, Fire in the Radio at the time, and then I got an email from these guys from Bulgaria being like, "Hey, you know, we don't have a ton of money, but we crowdsourced enough money, like a few thousand euros, and and uh, you know, we we're wondering what you would have cost had you mix our record." And um, and I was like. Honestly, like, I don't charge that much to, to work with bands, especially because I love to travel, and I'll take any excuse to travel that I can get. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I uh, said, hey, man, for, 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 your, for what you have in your budget, or a little bit, you know, or for what you have in your budget, if you buy me a plane ticket, I'll just fly to Bulgaria and produce your whole album. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you got yourself a fucking deal. So, um, so I went to Bulgaria and, and uh, flew to the middle of nowhere. Like, um, it was in a place um, called uh, Dobrina, which is... Nowhere, like a hundred people live there. Um, most of them are like old people, like old women, and it's like husbands have died. It's like a ghost town, pretty much. Um, it's close. The closest city is a place called Varna, which is a beautiful like college town or college city on uh, on the Black Sea, which is just like gorgeous, basically. Um, and uh, yes, I flew to Varna. I flew for twenty six hours alone and got picked up in the middle of the night at the airport in Varna by a bunch of young Bulgarian guys, and they drove me out for an hour away from the city, out into the woods, um, you know, out into the kind of fields. And, um, and yeah, we recorded in, in an old theater that was, like, built during the communist, like, or during the Soviet, the Soviet times. Yeah. Um, in this guy's, uh, in, the, in the town that this guy's grandparents lived in um, back before they were Soviets, and, and the Soviets came in. Made them join them, basically. Um, so yeah, and that's where these guys go and party now and write all their music and have crazy raids and shit. And like, it's it's pretty it's pretty insane. Now, uh, you you've recorded so many albums uh, in somewhat controlled situations, being that they're in your studio. Like, what was it like to? Figure out how how best to record inside one of these halls, like like this this Bulgarian. Well, for me, um, for me, it was easy because um, because because of all my experience going to people's houses, and like yourself, and recording them as teenagers, and or not teenagers, just recording rock. Um, I was actually I'm actually totally comfortable walking into any um, room. Um, with some mics and some gear and just recording it. You know, the, I, I have a little bit of concern about the equipment because I couldn't bring much. I, I, brought, I brought a laptop running Pro Tools, um, you know, and, um, but I didn't really bring anything beyond that because obviously the way to bring out some equipment all the way to Bulgaria is insane. Also, Bulgaria, um, a lot of good recording equipment is made there. Um, there's a company called Antelope that makes um, really excellent recording equipment. And uh, the band um, provided one, one of the employees from Antelope um, 
to make Pro Audio interfaces that work with Pro Tools, um, he came to help out and engineer on the session. So he kind of brought the mics and the interfaces, sound cards, all that stuff that's needed. So, um, so yeah, so luckily he was really smart and really good at his job. And, um, and I came prepared and, um, it was actually really wasn't very hard. It was, it was not, I mean, it sounds super weird and, um, and you know, it was a super interesting and fun and wild experience, but, but from a technical standpoint, it was fine. Um, I actually showed up there and they, they, you know, they borrowed all their friends, good gear too. Like, cause they, they're actually from, they're from the city of, uh, of Plovdiv, which is sort of the second biggest city in, 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 um, in, Bulgaria and Bulgaria has a good music scene and, and they have lots of stuff. So they borrowed a bunch of good guitar amps and stuff and they've given me a variety of stuff and they'd hold it all over there to this small town and put it all in this theater. Um, and just were like, what do you want to use? So when I showed up, they were like, they'd already checked all the boxes. So I just basically set up the recording. I had to wear headphones because I sat on the stage of the theater beside the drummer and I, and I brought headphones to kind of block up the sound, but also to hear the recording as it's taking place. Yeah. Um, yeah, so technically it was, it was not hard. It was, it was culturally super fun and interesting and cool. But from a technical standpoint, it was fine. It was it, it was just uh, it just was uh, another day at the office to me. Yeah. Except that after night, I'd come home to walk up the street to these guys' grandparents' house, and then they'd cook me uh, amazing, interesting food, and um, you know, and, and we'd drink Bulgarian wine and raki, and they'd tell me all about what it was like growing up in Bulgaria, and I learned all this cool stuff about you know Bulgarian and Balkan like culture, which I never knew. I hadn't been very far into Eastern Europe before, so I, I really didn't know much about it, and uh, so I was really, uh, really appreciative of, like, the knowledge and I gained, and mostly those guys are just such fucking awesome people that I loved uh, their friendship. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was great that they, I had no one to hang out with. I went there alone, but there's 10 of them, because there's, like, five guys in the band, and then they, they brought a cook to, to cook for us, because... I also told them, you know, because I'm, you know, basically recording for pretty cheap and flying all the way to Bulgaria, I'd really appreciate, like, uh, you know, a meal at the end of the day. Yeah. And uh, these guys are like, oh, yeah, we're going to cook for everyone. You know, our, our friend is actually the chef, and he's going to come along and hang out for the whole session. So they make nice, like, traditional, like, uh, Bulgarian dishes, like, every single night. Uh, and it was great. Um, so, so yeah, it was just such a fun experience. And, yeah, we yeah, drink wine till 1 in the morning and go to bed, and then, Wake up and we go to the studio for 10 a.m. every day, just like I do in Vancouver. I, I treat it exactly the same. Same work ethic. I work 10 hours a day, and at the end of 10 hours, I, I turn into a pumpkin, and that's all you get. So, <laughs> so that, that's for me, that's sustainable, and that comes back to those times where I used to work uh, so much that I'd, I'd go crazy. So now I'm like, after 10 hours, I'm good. It's time to eat dinner <laughs> you yeah. know, and chill. So, yeah. Now, on the on the opposite side of that, just since you had mentioned Brutus, uh, Brutus has come out to Vancouver to 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 make uh, records with you. Uh, the, the most recent one, for sure, Nest. Um, yeah. do, do you extend that that friendship outside of recording hours when when a traveling band has has come into town? Absolutely. Uh, Brutus will attest that I'm, I'm like the the tour guide of, of Vancouver because I I, I I love Vancouver. I, I love living here, and I I um I love showing people all the cool spots and, and Vancouver's kind of one of those cities that I, I feel like if you just arrive here it's not a city like New York where you can just walk down the street and see 15 cool things like Vancouver has a lot of hidden kind of corners to it I feel and, and, and a lot of the main tourist attractions are actually kind of lame like like the steam clock or like whatever but um, um, so, so I love showing people around my city and uh, the first time Brutus came out um, 
they spent a whole week here afterwards, which I took the week off. And I drove them up to Squamish and took them up the mountains and took them to the, um, 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 sorry, what is the museum with the Bill Reeds uh, in and out of UBC, the Museum of Anthropology? Yeah. Um, I brought them out there to, uh, to show them about, uh, you know, the local people of, of, uh, of this area, uh, indigenous people of, of British Columbia and stuff, and to see the Bill Reeds and all that. And I took them out to, uh, to Wreck Beach um, to, um, to, to, to check out, you know, what that culture is like down there. And, <laughs> and yeah, they loved it. I took them out, out to all the cool restaurants around and stuff like that, like... Um, uh, for, for Brutus, uh, one of them's a vegan and one of them's a vegetarian. And, and I think in Belgium, like, you know, the, the cuisine for those people with that lifestyle is maybe not as well represented as Vancouver is, where, like, everything is vegetarian option. So I take them out for vegetarian poutine, vegan poutine. I take them out for, you know, like, we're going for vegan, like, you know, pizza tonight or, you know, like that kind of shit that just isn't as well represented in Belgium. So, um, so yeah, they, they, they love their time here. And I think that's actually part of the reason why they came back because they just ended up loving the city and um, hanging out. Yeah, so I, I, I always do I always do that for bands that are here, especially because I love to eat too. So I always try to take them to good, affordable restaurants, take them to the cool Vietnamese restaurant that, you know, isn't on the tourist guide, you know, that kind of thing, right? So Yeah. Kind of getting into relationships with the bands you record. There's This is maybe my, my memory on the things here, but uh, there's a couple of points in your career where you recorded a band and then you joined the band. Like, uh, one, yeah. one, one being Operation Makeout and, and then more, more recently with Needles Pins. Like, that's, that's kind of how I'm remembering things. Like, how, how did either of those situations fall, fall into place? Well, with Operation Makeout, it was just that um, the bass player quit um, right before they had a show. Like, the bass player and the drummer were in a relationship, and uh, me and the guitar player were in a relationship um, when I, before I was in the band. And, um, and then it was International Women's Day, and um, CITR wanted to have a bunch of uh, predominantly female bands uh, play live on the radio to celebrate that. And it had been asked Operation Makeout to play. And to them, you know, they were, they were just kind of buzz about them, and they wanted to, to, to be there and, and uh, play on the radio um, and celebrate Women's Day. And um, so, so, so they were just like, uh, their bass player quit and, uh, on a week's notice. So I said, I think I can learn five songs this week and, and play bass in your band um, just to help out, uh, help out the band. And, um, and uh, then I loved playing the songs and then being in the band, and, and I just stuck with it. Um, and then when that band broke up, I mean, that kind of happened with Black Rice, too. In the case of Black Rice, uh, they were about to record their, their second album, or their third, their, yeah, their second album. And um, their bass player got uh, him and the drummer, something like that, maybe got in an argument, I don't know what it was, but they had to start falling out. Um, and he quit, or whatever, and um, uh, again, I was supposed to record them, so they just asked me to, to, to play the bass on the album, so I, so I did. And then with Neils and Pins, Neils and Pins are my favorite local band. They still are, even though I'm in it now. <laughs> I just love the band, and I love recording it so much. And uh, um, they wanted to make a record that was more polished, um, so they asked me to, or allowed me to play some keyboards on it and stuff like that. And they had their other friend... Um, who didn't want to join the band play second guitar on the record? So, um, so then when the record was done, they said, "Do you want to play um, play those songs for us live?" And I said, "Yeah." And then I just kind of never left. <laughs> you know, basically, I just I just started playing with it, and now we we written a whole other album and recorded it, which I recorded as well. And that'll come out in the spring, hopefully. So, um, yeah. So, so I just kind of ended up in those situations in those three times, which was which was which was really really cool. Um, yeah, so that was just luck, really. <laughs> yeah. 
When was the last time someone recorded you? Oh, good question. Um, um, I think probably when I first joined Black Rice, because Black Rice had recorded um, 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 in the um, had one Black Rice had one shindig, which gave them free recording at Mushroom Studios um, in those days. Now you get free recording of me if you went shindig. But um, 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 so I just joined the band, so we got to go to Mushroom and record on the incredible uh, Neve console there. Um, and we made um, uh, this split record with a band called State Cops from Calgary. Mm-hmm. We did four songs, and yeah, it was a great experience. And uh, so, yeah, I was hands off on that entirely, which was good. Um, uh, Needles and Pins is going to do um, do a recording pretty soon, a live recording for video. Um, um, it's called Mixtape Rodeo. It's like a little, it's a, a, some Vancouver people that are getting local bands to, to play for, you know, sort of for a streaming thing, um, you know, with no show that's happening right now. So so we're going to do a recording for them. And the people that do the recording were intimidated because they're like, oh, well, you know, we feel like, uh, you know, Jesse's so experienced and like we feel like awkward recording. And I was like, no, 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 fuck that. I'm, I'm not putting my hands in your work. I'm not going to criticize you. I, I don't want anything to do with it. Just I just want to play the guitar and the keyboards, reels and pins, and, and you guys record it and, and and I'm very, very happy to uh, to be a part of it. So, so yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, sadly, I'm not sure if that's going to happen right now because of the restrictions. But, yeah, but sure. uh, we're, we are going to do a little bit of recording that way. So um, it'll happen eventually, just a matter of when. So yeah. Yeah. So so I, I would like to in a way, but um, but I just you know so folks are recording other people, and because I have the big studio, I just you know plus it's fun for me to record myself, but it's also a lot of work. So <laughs> I, sometimes I think it'd be better if I just hired someone else to do it. You know, but. Yeah. But I haven't done that yet. Now, you, you've recorded a lot of albums that, that as, as we've mentioned in this conversation, have, have gained a lot of traction, whether it's Japan Droids or White Lung, The Pack, uh, the Brutus record now, uh, the Ancients record that, that, that won the Juno. Uh, you've got almost 600 records that, that, that are under your belt. Like, are there any under-the-radar ones that, that you'd want people to really listen to? Yeah, that's a good, 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 good question. I mean, there is. Like, I mean, sadly, like... In this line of work, the majority of shit goes nowhere, right? You know, it's, it's no fault of necessarily the band or myself. I mean, sometimes it could be. It could be that the songs are shit, or it could be that my recording is shit. It could be. But, uh, but most of the time, it's just that, like, there's so much music being recorded and so much, like, um, media being created and content being created all the time that cutting through the noise of that is, is very difficult. So, um, so I think that it's kind of more, like, I mean, you know, as for specifics, I think there's bands that are getting buzzes about them that are probably maybe better than people give them credit for or something like that. But, but, um, um, but yeah, as for stuff that's under the radar, I'm trying to think. Like, um, I wish, I wish there. I'm looking actually looking at the at the at the wall I have with all the records on it that I've done. That I'm just trying to think of like what is is not represented. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think I think the record I'm kind of built on locally right now that um, was just done was um, the new Brutal Poodle. That's sounding really good to me. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I think Brutal Poodle is maybe on some people's local radar, but I think maybe how good their songs are. Um, I think people will become aware of how good the songs are once they hear the record and hear them all nicely recorded and produced. I'm hoping they like it. I hope, I hope people like it when they hear it because I really like it and it's something that I relate to. So, so that's probably the first thing on my mind. But, but again, that hasn't even come out and seen the light of day yet. Uh, and as for records that, that already came out and didn't get the traction, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, there, there would be, it would be the majority of them, 
know, in a way, right? So it's hard for me to narrow down. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Chris Vanderland announced earlier in the year that that he's going to do a, a, a digital re-release of, of all the DBS material through his uh, uh, Boat Dreams from the Hill, which is is a project that that kind of started a few years back when when you yourself put them on on Bandcamp. I'm wondering what is what's 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 going on. That's the question. What's going on with that? Uh, well, what's going on about it is that um, is that Chris is um, Chris has decided because he cares about the band and all of us are too busy to deal with it. Uh, he's decided to you know take it and put it on his label and, and and clean it all up and present it in a in a consistent format where the albums are properly scanned and and uh, and I, I I went and cleaned up all the old recordings, remastered them, got them all ready for streaming and stuff like that. So so yeah, basically it was just like. You know, I, I had the initiative to get it all in, on there because a lot of people kept bugging me all the time as well over email, like, where can I find the download record, blah, blah, blah. So, so uh, um, actually, these Russian guys, PBS um, was well-loved in Russia, for, which we did not know at the time, but uh, there was, like, chat rooms about us and stuff like that back in the day, and um, people would try very hard to find our records, which were never released in, in Russia. Um, so, so those guys kept bugging me, and that, that really kind of gave me a sense of how many people still cared about hearing the records. Yeah. So then I went, and, and that eventually... I found the time to, there's probably on my list of things to do for a couple of years before I finally got around to it, but I did get around to it, and, um, but then I did a half-assed version of the covers, I just, like, literally, like, I didn't own a scanner, so I just, like, took a picture of the album cover and made that the fucking band camp, because I just, like, like, the, the amount of work just for me to get it all into a proper digital wave file, cleaned up and ready to go, was, like, days of work, right? So I was, like, fuck the album cover, like, someone else could deal with that. And, uh, yeah, Chris Chris decided to, to take it upon himself and do that, which was really great, and, um, um, and uh, yeah, so so and I, and some of it was re- remastered and stuff like that. There might actually be a, um, a little bit of stuff I remix at some point in time as well. I've been thinking about it, so um, I've been thinking about doing a re-release of, of, of one of our records at some point in time. So yeah. so there's a little bit of talk with a little label, Montreal, of releasing one on vinyl as well, yeah. which might mean that I that I do a remix on something from, from way back when. But but it's it's still kind of up in the air. Yeah. So sort of it's sort of it's it's medium on the priority list right now, but but not not high. Yeah. Is the world of shit demo like higher on the list? Pretty much. I mean, well, that's. I mean, both things are equal, actually. Um, yeah. So I'm, I, I'm thinking like um, with, with with you know, if restrictions get harder and more and more bands have to cancel because they can't jam because they can't hang out, um, then 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 those things will rise up the list as other things that I'm getting paid to do are, are checked off the list. <laughs> yeah. 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 How how has the studio been doing through through all of this through through this this weird weird last nine months or so? It's been fine. I mean, we we volunteered like a lot of small businesses. We volunteered to close our doors for about six weeks. Um, uh, I had like one solo artist come in, my friend Corbin, who I've recorded for years, Corbin Murdoch, and I did a bit of recording and stuff. And um, and um, um, I did. A, I had so much mixing to do at the beginning of it that I still went to the studio every day. I had a, such a long list of shit to be done that um, I, even though the studio wasn't open to bands, I, I still came every day and, and mixed. And I, I thought I would get everything done to the point I'd be twiddling my thumbs, but I, I didn't. I'm still not done, the, the, the world of shit demo. So um, um, so I, I'm almost there. I've actually half done it. So, um, yeah, so, so we'll see how the next two months go. So right now, bands are, you know... You know, when they announced you could have your core six bubble, every ba- every band was like, okay, well, my band members are my core six, <laughs> you know, whatever. So some bands decided to not jam anymore and didn't want to risk it. Um, but the majority of bands um, 
did want to risk it. So, um, so we haven't had any um, drop off in in bookings. In fact, for quite a few months, we were more booked than ever because nobody could play shows. So all they can so they figure well, we may as well take a year to record the new record, and then when we can play shows, we'll have a hot new record to, to sell the people and to tour on. Um, so that's been fine. But you know, as winter comes along. Obviously, none of us know what's in store for us or what the authorities have yeah. uh, in mind for our lives. Um, so I think we're all, I mean, my prediction is that, or my hope is that by heading towards summer of 2021, we'll be getting back to normal and the music scene will be recovering um, before, you know, permanent damage is, is done. Um, I think if it goes, if this shit goes on for another year, then then the permanent damage will be irreparable, and we'll probably have to rebuild the music scene from the ground up. And how that affects recording studios, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm assuming that music is not going to stop. Like the kids of tomorrow are not going to um, just listen to Let's Up and Four over and over again. They're going to want new shit too. So um, so I don't. I think the demand. Uh, music is two hundred thousand years old at least. Um, so I don't think that a year or two of a global pandemic would be enough to halt music creation or uh, and these days people consume media more than ever and, and digital music is media so um, um, yeah so I don't I don't see how it's gonna I don't think it's gonna go anywhere but obviously with no bands making any money ever you know that eventually it's gonna trickle down like there's a lot of projects that are bound to be projects for people and they pay out of pocket but with no touring and no selling of records ever that changes things especially for the bigger bands especially for bands like Brutus and stuff that are making a career out of their band yeah. um, it really affects them so the local bands that are that, are, that work day jobs and pay out of pockets um, for, for their recordings I don't think it'll affect things that much yeah um yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know why it would. I mean, I mean, unless they're literally like at the point where, like, you know, if you walk out on the street to hang out with a friend and go to band practice, you are like arrested. <laughs> you know, which yeah. some places are like that. You know, Australia was like that. So, um, so you know, if it became that severe there here, then then that could happen, and obviously it would affect things. Um, I did have a cancellation when the new restrictions came in uh, the other day. So uh, within an hour of those restrictions, I. I lost a two thousand dollar project, so yeah. yeah, it's 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 real. Um, but I also was able to fill that project with some mixing stuff, um, so it, it doesn't it doesn't put me out it doesn't put me out of business. But you know, obviously, it sucks for everybody. Yeah, yeah, man. It's, yeah. it's got to be it's got to be tough for you know all all parts of the industry right now, uh, yourself included, yourself included. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, we're kind of like I think we're like the last part of the industry to be sucked by it. But but um, but but that said, yeah, no, I mean everyone's. When there's no money, there's no money. So we'll, 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 we'll just have to see. I, I, I think that if we can get the show on the road by next summer, then then, um, then I think we can, I think the music industry can, can recover and a lot of the venues and, and festivals and things like that um, can continue to exist. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, but, but if it goes on for two years, then I think the financial burden will become too great and I'll be looking at having to start new venues again and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, th I think those are my questions for you, Jesse. I, I want to thank you for, for taking the time out of the day to, to really get into some, some deep Vancouver history. There. Yeah. Oh, man, I really appreciate it, Greg. It's uh, been a great interview. I love, I, love, uh, I love being interviewed by you. So you're, you're always so well-researched and uh, have interesting questions. It's, uh, you're really good at, at, at tying an interview together, so thanks for that. <laughs> okay, no problem. Well, uh, what, what, do you, what, what, are you, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Like, are you heading into the studio? Uh, the, uh, the band just showed up that I'm, that I'm recording today. I'm recording Grave Infestation, so doing a Metal record today. Um, uh, Andrew Singh's a drummer, and, and, and Graham, they're fucking awesome people. That um, they played in Ana, and okay. uh, they have tons of bands, Ceremonial Bloodbath, all these really 
like dark obscure death metal bands and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I finished Andrew's drums yesterday, and she absolutely crushed it. She's the best she's ever drummed. Um, uh, actually, Ash from Three Inches of Blood uh, was giving her some lessons, and she's just like sounding fucking better than ever. Um, so she's out of the way, and now I'm, uh, the bass player showed up. I'm looking forward to playing bass. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'll, I'll let you get to that. I, ho- I hope it's a sick recording day, and uh, yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk. I-, I hope to talk to you soon. I'm hoping it's not a sick recording day, actually, Greg, just so you know. I'm hoping it's a good recording day. I don't want anybody to get sick. Har har. Okay, Greg, take care of yourself, man. Well... There was a lot to love in that conversation, and I once again want to thank Jesse for taking the time out of his day to get into some old Vancouver punk rock history and just music history in general. I did not know that he recorded Teen Two Slices, a band I'd seen a handful of times in the mid-90s, and a band that he, I guess, recorded for nothing more than a six-pack of beer and apparently a potato. I likewise did not remember that the first Pro Tools recording session that he had done was the Reserve 34 album, which is no doubt a part of Vancouver hardcore history uh, and something to check out if you haven't already. Wrapping things up, I am still doing this week to week, so I'm not 100% sure what the next post will be. But I do have a few things going on in the background, and I hope I can share them soon. Once again, you can find the full archive of interview posts and podcast episodes at gutfeeling.substack.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter there as well. You can also find the podcast on Apple Music and Spotify. There's not much else to say this week, I guess. So just wear a mask, wash your hands, be kind to each other, and I guess I'll catch you the next time.